Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from the founder of a multi-million dollar international interactive toy product and how to scale up to the big leagues after launching your product through a successful crowdfunding campaign. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, on to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Ben Drury to the show. Ben is the founder of Yodo Play, a connected hardware toy product for kids. Yodo just recently raised $17 million in Series A financing. Before that, Yodo launched their physical product via a successful crowdfunding campaign. So today, Ben's going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can grow and scale their products after they finish their crowdfunding campaign in order to get to those big-time worldwide sales. Now, on to the episode. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Good, good. Uh, excited to have you on the show today. Talk all things about scaling after crowdfunding. But uh, first and foremost, why don't you give us a bit of a background of you know, your relevance to, the, to this? Because I think it's an interesting story that led you into founding Yodo. Sure. Yeah. Let me just tell you about my, my previous startup because it is relevant. In 2004, I founded a business called Seven Digital, which is a digital music um, platform business, but very focused on B2B rather than B2C. So we basically aggregated and licensed the world's music and then made that available by a set of robust APIs to third parties. Um, The reason I mention it is in the latter years of that business, we mostly were doing deals with hardware companies. So our big customers were people like BlackBerry and Samsung, HTC, HP, LG, almost anyone who wasn't Apple fundamentally, who really wanted to build their own digital music service into their own hardware devices, but didn't want to have to deal with the licensing, which is incredibly complicated in music and didn't want to have to build the tech. And then there were all the reporting back end and things like that. So we we were doing that for probably the last five years of that business and gained a lot of experience. We were building digital music into all kinds of crazy devices like connected fridges from LG and car head units from QNX and even light bulbs. There was one company that had a had this connected light bulb with a little speaker in it, and it was designed to go into like hairdressers and small stores, and they wanted to build digital music into it. And we're like, yeah, why not? Um, we just gave them an SDK and some APIs, and off, off they went. Um, right so, and you took that public, right? Yeah, we took the company public in 2014. It was a small IPO in the UK, not a, not a glamorous NASDAQ or bell ringing uh, float in the US, but it was still a yeah, it was still an IPO. And um, actually, around that time, uh, happened to have kids. And my co-founder, Philip, also had kids who's the CTO. And it was really that sort of life-changing moment of having kids and taking the company public and then actually stepping down from that previous company that really was the inspiration behind Yoto. So although we had both of us had never done hardware before, We'd worked with a lot of hardware companies and we'd built up quite a lot of experience. And we were like, well, how hard How hard can it really be to do hardware? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it became a, Yodo became a huge success. So what, what really kicked that off between going public with your software companies, starting to work with the hardware companies, and then describe what Yodo is and how you kind of came about that uh, idea and started working on it? So, yeah, sure. So Yodo is a product for kids. It's a connected, uh, connected speaker for kids that puts kids at the heart of the experience. 
So we basically have these NFC cards that we use that kids can put inside our speaker and that triggers the playback of music, stories, podcasts, radio, all very carefully curated and safe and secure for children. And our mantra really there is kids in control. The whole experience puts them at the heart of the experience. And it was the joint facts, really, the, the, the history of doing digital music and working with those hardware companies, having kids and having a sense that we wanted, we didn't want to put an iPad in front of a, a one-year-old or a two-year-old. We, we really wanted to, um, we wanted to have access to the amazing content in, on the internet, but very audio-centric. We kind of really believe in the power of audio for creativity and imagination, as opposed to screen-based content, which doesn't kind of almost does all the imagination for you with, with, with the moving images. So that was really the basic idea behind uh, behind Yoto. And we both, at, at our heart, we're both geeks. We're both hackers. So um, we started, we got the soldering irons out and we um, we were fascinated by Raspberry Pi, which is a big thing in the UK. So with with some Raspberry Pis and, and buying a few components and hacking things together, we basically built a, a basic prototype. So this was way back in um, like 2005, 2006. It would have been now 2021. Sorry, no, I meant, I meant, I meant 20, uh, 2015, 2016. I just missed the whole decade. <laughs> <laughs> Time flies, especially yeah. in hardware. Yeah. So um, we basically kind of built this product for our own kids and um, we started testing it. It was really, I mean, it, the first product was pretty ugly. We were basically, we didn't even know how to do 3D printing. So we were basically doing laser cutting. We were like laser cutting slices of wood and slices of perspex to build this kind of prototype. But we got it working and we could see, um, even from our kids, which were very young at the time, we could see that they could control it, that they were engaged by it. It was something that was fascinating to them. So I thought, yeah, fine. Um, and then we started building more prototypes. We tested it with some other families and we were thinking, okay, yeah, this is this seems to be a thing. And then a bit of a breakthrough was we met um, our first employee, a guy called Tom, who's uh, an industrial designer by trade uh, in one of the top colleges, and he'd had he'd founded his own business doing um, physical enclosures for iPads. And he he'd also had a kid recently, so basically it was a coming together of minds. And uh, he took our very early ugly prototype and turned it into something more beautiful. And it was at that point we decided, okay, let's let's really test the market for this. Let's go on to Kickstarter. Yeah, that's great. So, and and this is what I'm quite excited to talk about because you chose Kickstarter as a launch platform, but then you scaled to be a massive, um, you know, children's product essentially after that hardware product, which obviously integrates with with tech. Uh, and, and I'm really interested to how you use that uh, Raspberry Pi as well because we use that in a lot of prototyping. I mean, for those who haven't used a Raspberry Pi or similar technology, basically it's a small computer, and you can do a lot of things with it. And it's amazing for early, especially for connected devices or electronic devices in hardware. It's an amazing platform to test and prototype how your product's going to work. You can program a variety of things. Basically, the sky's the limit. Essentially, just imagine it as a tiny computer in your hardware product um, that has all sorts of different apps and APIs and different things that you can code into it. And uh, it's great that you use that to actually validate the model, to prove the prototype, and then you figured out how to productize it then went to crowdfunding. So what happened in crowdfunding? And then we'll get to the meat of this conversation, which is how do you then scale after a successful crowdfunding campaign? Sure. So yeah, Ras go back to Raspberry Pi. So at the time, I think it was the Raspberry Pi 2 or the Raspberry Pi 3, um, single board computer, as you said, but it was still 
very expensive to put into a product. Um, and so we were trying to figure that out. But almost as, as we were still trying to figure that out, they came out with the Raspberry Pi Zero, which was a bit of a breakthrough moment. This was the $9 um, Raspberry Pi, so a cut-down version, but it didn't come with connectivity. And we started prototyping with that, and we had to add in, add in the wireless connectivity separately. And then almost as we got close to, closer to launch, they then came out with the Raspberry Pi Zero W, which was the, the, the small Raspberry Pi with built-in wireless and built-in Bluetooth, which was a game changer for us. And it does show you in hardware, you kind of have to look at the roadmaps of the underlying technologies and almost sometimes make a guess of where it's going, skating to where the puck is going rather than trying to build on what's there. But there's a lot of risk involved with that, of course. Um, but we've kind of made that call. And also, I think we were pretty open-minded with the Kickstarter campaign. We knew that the product we were launching was not scalable. We knew it was too expensive. We basically knew it was a stepping stone to something else. And actually, we also knew at that point that Raspberry Pi was not going to be the, the ultimate solution for us because it was basically over, over overkill for what we needed. As you said already, it's a full computer. We didn't need a full computer. Um, it was too slow to boot up, for example, for a kid's product. You know, you can't have a product that takes over a minute to boot up. That's not acceptable to a child. <laughs> so we knew things like that, um, and we knew it was too expensive. But we also believed that we needed to find product market fit. We needed to prove the concept fundamentally would work, and there was sufficient demand to, in order to allow us to build a more mass market version. So let me just talk through the Kickstarter campaign. We launched it in November 2017. Pretty modest. We raised about $50,000 on that campaign. And as I think you said to me earlier, um, before we started the podcast, um, the Kickstarter funds do not fund the business. That is pre-orders, um, of which you're probably ultimately not going to make much margin on and certainly not any profit on. So I think most Kickstarter entrepreneurs need to be aware of what they're thinking to achieve. And I personally believe that some of the some of the more some of the unsuccessful Kickstarter campaigns, the ones who've actually raised too much money, because they raise, they they need to take time to scale up. They, there's 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 a very different production process for producing something at say the tens of thousands of units to the few hundred. I mean, ultimately, we we sold only a couple, only like two to three hundred units on the Kickstarter campaign, and ultimately, that first version of the product, we only sold seven hundred and fifty. Um, which was perfect for the scale we were at. We didn't want to do any more than that because we were basically making it almost, it was almost handmade. So um, we didn't want any more than that. We wanted that to be a stepping stone to the next thing. So we did the Kickstarter campaign. It was successful. And then in, um, in 2018, we spent most of that year making that first generation product. Um, it was made in, in the UK, in Sheffield. We had one partner doing the injection molding and we had another partner doing the, the PCB assembly. It was based on the Raspberry Pi Zero W and we managed to ship that in uh, in late 2018. So it took it took a good 10 months or so from when the campaign ended to, to shipping the product, um, which was a bit later than we hoped, but I think almost all the Kickstarter campaigns tend to be a little bit later. Yeah, you know um, what? There's a lot of really, really important things I just want to, to, to highlight here from what you said, um, from one of the first things you said in, in coming into this, it, it's that your first product, you looked at it as a stepping stone, your first production run. 
And that's amazing. You know, you have incredible foresight into this because that also pairs with something else you said about not looking at crowdfunding as a moneymaker. And we've talked about this on the show before, and I think the audience really gets it, that your first crowdfunding run is to get the product out there, to get feedback, to get users, to get real strength behind your vision and to prove that it's, it's viable because people actually whipped out their credit card to buy this thing. But you actually plan for this, which is great. You even used a model you knew wouldn't be your scalable model, but you used something that could get to market to get that um, product into people's hands in, in its first version. And then you actually planned to improve and iterate um, around costs and obviously feedback and all the rest. I think that's very powerful, uh, especially for people that are in the development process of their product right now to think about how can you develop it today to make a great product that really works for your customer? It may not necessarily be a great business model for now because it's, it's when you're building a new product and you're building what could be a multi-million or multi-tens of millions of dollar business, it's very short-sighted to look at that first 50000 and say, okay, I want to make $10,000 off this first 50000 And I know it's tough because as a startup, you're looking at that, you know, you've put a lot of money into research, tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of dollars into design and engineering and prototyping. You finally get to market and you finally get buyers. And now all of a sudden the money pendulum is shifting the other direction. People are actually starting to pay you for your product as opposed to you paying to develop your product. And it's exciting, but you really need to look at that, especially that first production run as your, your, your launch, as your spark and not as the end goal. And it, it's incredible to hear this story from you. And that's what really attracted me to, to your success story around Yodo is the fact that you'd plan for that well in advance. And I'm sure that's coming back to your history and working with hardware companies. You knew how it worked. You knew how the big companies launch and succeeded with their uh, billion dollar product. So you could trickle that down to saying, okay, well, how does a startup really make an effective plan here? So what I want to know is based on that successful crowdfunding campaign, how did you leverage that to then create the amazing business that Yodo is today? Yeah. I mean, I have to say that the that Yodo is still absolutely a work in progress and it's still very, very early days. I mean, we've, we've now sold tens and tens of thousands of our current version compared to that, um, early version but we've, we've got a long way to go we to make this business successful we need to be in the hundreds of thousands of units uh, and then it then it can really fly and i should talk about our business model at some point as well because we don't make that much money on the the hardware itself it's really the repeat purchasing that um, drives our business which is important for people to consider anyone who's doing hardware they've got to consider are they really going to make the money the gross margin on the actual hardware product or is there an alternative revenue stream through services and software and content but that's i'll come back to that so um uh yeah so post post the kickstarter campaign for us there were i guess there were three main outcomes from it one was to one was to figure out can we actually do this are we do we have the right team do we have the right skills do we have the right motivations and desires to produce this to, to really go for this. And you know, we already thought the answer, we already knew what the answer was, but it's good to validate that. The second thing was basically we used the Kickstarter campaign as live RD. Absolutely live RD. Rather than doing, you know, a bit a bigger company would do uh, focus groups, they would do prototyping, they would be testing uh, for many, many months, even years sometimes many, many years on products and iterating and iterating. We couldn't afford to do that. Um, we couldn't afford to do that from a cash point of view, but also from a time point of view, because there was competitive pressure in this space. We already had one competitor. 
um, who had already reached some level of scale even before we got going. So we need we we knew that we had to move fast because otherwise we just wouldn't be in the game. So in a way, we treated the Kickstarter users, and we're very open with them because I think this is part of the appeal with the Kickstarter is that they they feel that they're part of their they're early adopters by definition, but they they kind of know they're guinea pigs, right? They they feel they like to feel part of the R and D process, so we basically did live R and D um, with with the customers, which was around the software because we were doing software software updates all the time. Um, We were figuring out lots of stuff. We were figuring out what the user experience should be. We were figuring out what the um, how to sell the product, what the what the marketing messages, what what messages resonated with people. We were figuring out what content to feature. That was very important. Um, what content to license, what content really, really worked. So getting the data, we were very motivated by data um, and seeing what the seeing what the uh, usage history was. Was this a product that people will use? A lot of kids' products would be a product you get a lot of usage in the early days, weeks, and hours of, 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 per- of post-purchase, and then there'd be a big drop-off. And we didn't see that. We did not see that. We saw repeat usage over weeks and then months and now years consistent usage you get seasonal patterns and you get some you get some obviously get some drop off some people just lose interest or for whatever reason or the kids become too old or you know there's lots of multiple reasons but we saw consistent usage and we saw that when we released new content for example we saw spikes when people go oh wow there's more yoto cards available for my yoto pack so we kind of knew we were onto something. It was an early for us, even in those first few hundred. And then there's some expression that you don't actually need that many real users to figure stuff out. You only need, and a representative sample of of some something like this only needs a few hundred, really. So we 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 figured out that yeah, we we're onto something. We knew there was we knew there was lots of flaws with the product from from the outset. We we knew how to address those, and we were just we were pretty open with people as well. We said like. Well, for example, the first product didn't have a battery, so it always had to be plugged in. We knew that, and the customers knew that. We just we were very open and transparent about that. Um, but for us, the the third thing um, was ability to attract investment. We knew to to do I mean to do any tech business, you need to raise money, especially with hardware. I mean, we were doing hardware, software, and content, and trying to build a brand at the same time. So <laughs> there's lots of uses of uh, funds that we needed. So for us, the I guess the MVP, which was our Kickstarter product, was the, the main. Ultimately, the main purpose was to be able to raise investment um, and and to be able to do that live R and D that I talked about, and that was successful. We we went from having raised a little bit of angel money, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, to then start to to raise millions of dollars, and now we've we just closed our Series A, which was seventeen million dollars. So. You know, we've gone through that funding journey and oh. along the way we managed to get some pretty cool investors like we have uh, sir paul mccartney as an investor uh, the beetle and we have the uh, the royal dahl family is also as an investor so that also helped us along the way well that you know that investment message is very powerful just in itself and you've got a lot of things to a lot of nuggets in there but uh, that investment message is really powerful because by the time you have real users who are purchasing your product and giving you that real-time feedback, your your potential for raising funds is exponential from what it was before. And that's, you know, that, that coincides with hardware development. In the early phases, 
in the very, very early phase, in the idea phase, you know, you're on your own. Once you get into design and prototyping, you may get some seed funding. Um, but then once you actually get the real users, that's when you're into the big bucks, into the, you know, into the, the millions of dollars. And the, the really interesting thing I think that, you, that, that pairs with that, that you highlight is the fact that you don't need a lot of sales. And this is tremendous because it takes a lot of pressure off startups. When you understand that your crowdfunding doesn't have to be this multi-million dollar major success. In fact, what you said is that that can create problems. And I've seen that as well. It creates problems in scaling because it, it, it isn't easy, as great as it sounds, to sell 20,000 units out of the gate. Uh, it, that can take time and that can be difficult to actually procure, especially if you weren't prepared for production going in, which again is a, a whole separate issue. We heavily recommend to be very well prepared for production before you go into crowdfunding. Um, but if you're caught in that situation that you're not well-funded, it's a lot easier to service, like you said, in your situation, two to 300 customers, potentially even building some of these things by hand, doing quality control yourself to make sure that they're all great going out the door, making sure that you've got a feedback loop with those customers, keeping them involved along that path to ensure that they're, they feel part of the process. They'll be easier on you as well for your flaws if you've kept them in the loop. And that's a big one. Look at the campaigns where there's very little responses to the negative criticism on those campaigns. And then look at the ones that have been delayed by months and months, but they respond almost on a daily basis to any concerns or questions from their audience. Night and day difference in terms of the reviews that, that come through the pipeline. And all that took was communication, which is free and easy to do, especially as the founder, the owner, the manager, whatever of that product. So when you combine all these things together, it's a very powerful tool. And I, I think if you're in the early phases of developing a product, it's something to really look up to to say, look, I, I don't need to sell tens of thousands of units in crowdfunding. My goal is to get an MVP version of that product, something that's high quality, that our users love to be interactive with them, especially those first buyers, or at least to be collecting feedback once you've got the units to them, and then use that to leverage uh, and scale from there. And one of the big things, obviously, that can help scale is funding. And that's where you really get access to the big bucks where you never would have had access to it before. Absolutely. And just to pick up on that point around the importance of uh, of community, it's one of your, I think you have to use your size to your advantage. When you're, when, you, when you're very small, you have many disadvantages against a bigger company, but you also have many advantages, and I call them almost um, startup superpowers. And the fact that you can personally respond to every single comment that you get is a superpower, because you won't be able to do that when you're 100,000 customers. It's impossible. So use it and, and nurture that community. And, you know, I spent a lot of time doing that myself um, because I wanted to learn. And, and it's incredible that it's free research, as you said. It's, you know, even the next, sometimes you have to have a thick skin if you're dealing with a lot of angry customers, but work with them, understand them. And, and they're getting you valuable feedback that you'd probably have to pay a lot of money to a research company. You're just getting that for free. And we've taken that philosophy. And we're very customer customer centric and uh, we've taken that philosophy all the way through from kickstarter and now and now we nurture that mostly on facebook so we have um there's a very strong yoto player community uh has four nearly four and a half thousand members and they're super active i mean if there's something we do they don't like they tell us straight away um but we we ask them we do like feedback fridays where we ask them questions on what content they'd like to see or what features they'd like to see so we're nurturing this very strong community. You have to do it um, at, at the early stages because actually it gets a lot harder when you become bigger. So if you're not doing it when you're small, then you, you're really you're really missing a trick. 
Oh, that's sound advice. So can we unpack that a bit? How did you actually, um, you know, if you can actually even get into some of the mechanics of it, how did you migrate that community from your crowdfunding campaign to then bringing some of those users and then obviously expanding your user base via social media or other community platforms to really get them engaged in your product after the successful crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, that's super important. We talked about this a lot because fundamentally the product, the version two of the product, the more mass market product that we came out with was was way better. You know, it was like 5x better than the original product and it was way cheaper. So we were very conscious of this, that, you know, these people had invested in us early and, and I guess had that early adopter, may, maybe even had the early adopter penalty where you've, you know, you paid a lot of money. So we we were very conscious of that. And we even talked about giving them all free version two players. Um, we couldn't actually make that work. So we basically did a huge discount, like massive, massive discount. I think 50% off, I think it was. So um, we try to bring them the V the V1 customers along with us. And the good thing about our product is the all of the Yoto cards, which are basically like, like our cartridges effectively, they they also worked. So there was backward com- backward and forward compatibility. So they weren't really losing out and fundamentally got two players. Um, and, and again, we just communicated and we gave them a early access. We gave them a lot of information about the next generation products. So we didn't jettison them. Um, and in fact, a lot of them did migrate to becoming a V2 customers. Some of them still use the original product and we still support that original product. Although we're trying to get everyone onto the newer product because it just does so much more. Um, and it's easier to support and it's easier to upgrade. That's quite valuable. Uh, giving value to those early adopters so that they don't feel like they were left in the dust. So they don't feel like they understand they were a bit of a guinea pig, but you don't have to treat them like one. Um, sure. Fact, I mean, they- I, I'm sure you treat them better be- and you probably have a little bit more handholding to those original customers because they were early adopters and now you're offering deals and that to migrate them forward to your better product. But that's incredible. You used the successful crowdfunding campaign to raise big bucks. And then you use that money and that feedback to create a much better product for your second version and then to make it cheaper. And then you really looked after those original customers by getting them on board with the new one at, at a major discount. And I think that's a very powerful story to, you know, even if you're in the early stages of developing a product to think forward about how you'll actually plan that trajectory so that you can take care of all your customers and, and really have that loyal customer base, that loyal community or tribe around your product. Yeah, it's about doing the right thing. Obviously, we didn't make money from those early customers. We definitely lost money right. on each product. But the insights and the, the data and the research that we got is when it almost invaluable. We wouldn't be here about that. So we have to respect that and we have to bring, the, yeah, bring those people with us because they're going to be the ones that um, will be the strongest advocates going forward. Do you have any last uh, tips before we say goodbye into uh, scaling after crowdfunding? I'd say the only thing was uh, on the business model. I think if you're doing hardware, think very, very carefully about how you make your money. And when when you go for funding, the the investors are so a lot of investors don't like hardware in the VC community, but the ones the smarter ones, obviously, I believe, look they look very carefully at two things. One is unit economics. What's the fundamental unit economics of your business? And if you've only got hardware sales, they're going to struggle with that. But if you've got some kind of subscription revenue that investors love subscription, subscription revenue, um, if you've got some kind of repeat purchase revenues, 
that's uh, that's going to be attractive, especially if it's higher margin because hardware generally, uh, depending on your price points and stuff, hardware generally has a high cost associated with it. And then the second thing is um, prove out your usage metrics. And the investors that we spoke to were obsessed with cohorts. So they would be looking, for example, at let's have a look at the cohort from April 2020, for example. And I want to see the data on usage of that cohort exactly. So are they are they still using the product? Are they still purchasing? How often are they using? How often are they purchasing? And they most of these sophisticated investors these days have complicated data models. They'll feed that in and that will spit out almost like a yay or a nay whether to invest. So you got it, you got to almost think that like they think to understand what they're seeing and try to engineer that into your thinking and your product. And this a lot comes back to that feedback you're getting even from those early customers. Really understand how many of them are using it. Do they like it or dislike it? Uh, Are they going to buy your second version of it? Are they going to buy add-on products, which is what you're talking about, right? Products where you can eventually uh, potentially diversify or sell them subscriptions or add-ons or whatever else. And the better you understand these metrics, the better you are to convince an investor to come on board. And that actually can be a apply to the early stages, the, the better that you can see the vision for your product going forward, the more attractive that's going to be for an investor. And we talk about it on the show all the time, margins, margins, margins. If you're creating something new and innovative and special in, in the industry, you should ensure that you have those margins. If you're a one-off sale, you need to be very sure you have those margins because all your the only value you get is from that one product. If you're like in your case with Yodo, you're selling, let's say it reasonably at cost or whatever for the, for the actual base unit, and then you've got a subscription model for the cartridges or whatever else, you need to prove it with that model and understand, well, how does that create value for the investors going forward? Um, and yeah, it's and not just necessarily cash flow. It's how do they scale, how does this scale? How are they able to, how are they able to believe that you can raise more money or how can they raise more money for you? Or how can they exit at some point in time? All that has to do with your, you know, your, your future success or your proposed future margin uh, value, which, which you know, translates into EBITDA, which is your income every year by a certain multiple. And that's the value. And they need to know that if they're coming in at you know, a million dollars now, how are they going to exit for $5 million in, in, in multiple years? Or how are they going to get that cash flow out if you're, you're more cash-based uh, hardware business? All that stuff is very important, Yeah, I mean, um, especially you to, as you get bigger. I would say if, if you were to focus just on two KPIs or two metrics, customer lifetime value measured by gross margin, not revenue. So how much gross margin do you think you're able to generate from a customer over their lifetime? Um, versus CAC, how much did it cost you to acquire that customer? And you look at the ratio of those two numbers, and that's fundamentally what all investors will be looking at. Absolutely, especially at the bigger phases, right? As you go in the early phases when you're dealing with angels, a lot of the time, you know, either you or the idea or a combination of that can get you your first, you know, fifty, hundred, two hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, that's friends and family money, your own personal money, that sort of thing. But, sure. you know, because you're, you're selling, the idea is powerful. You should still understand your metrics. Everybody wants to know how they're going to get paid back. But as you get into the more serious or into the institutional investors, they will be more demanding on real hardcore numbers. So as you, if, if you want to get into, uh, like you did, now you're at uh, your $17 million Series A, you're going to have to have that stuff ironed out. And the best way that you can do that is have it in real customers' hands, use that data, understand your numbers, and project how that's going to grow going forward. Ben, really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for all your insight today and looking forward to talking to you again. Thanks, Kevin. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. 
the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.